Welcome to the Millionaire Secrets Podcast, where the most successful people in the world share their secrets to help you create the awesome life you desire. Welcome to another episode of Millionaire Secrets. Jeff Lerner here. So excited to be uh, joined by another incredible human today, having incredible conversations. We're joined today by Steve Sims. He is the founder of the world's first luxury concierge, which is called the Bluefish. And I was actually really excited when I found out we got Steve uh, because I've actually heard many times about the Bluefish and thought, oh my gosh, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Um, But I I never, I guess, never imagined I'd get to talk to Steve to actually understand it and and talk about it more. And heck, hopefully he'll pitch me on it and I can can become a customer because it seems so cool. Uh, But we'll dive into all about what the Bluefish is. Uh, Steve is a speaker, coach, author. He's got a best-selling book, Bluefishing. Um, that's been featured in Forbes, Wall Street Journal, all over the media. He's spoken at the White House. He's spoken at the Pentagon. As you dig into his story, uh, you know what? I'm not even going to try to do it justice. It's just incredible um, how he's taken this concept and parlayed it into this life and this brand and this personality. His clients include royalty, A-list celebrities, probably a, a, a thousand of the most famous people we can imagine that he may not even be able to tell us um, because it's so exclusive. And uh, he's also the host of The Art of Making Things Happen, which is a podcast. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's kind of quite a build up there I've got to live up to. Yeah, well, uh, it's, I mean, seriously, I've, I actually, um, it, it's funny, I knew you by the name Bluefish. Like before, I, before <laughs> when I saw Steve Sims was on the schedule, I was like, Steve Sims, Steve Sims. And then as soon as I saw Bluefish, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the Bluefish guy. Like, <laughs> And, it, and it's only because it's such a cool idea. And, 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 and we'll get into what it is. Obviously, the audience at this point is probably like, Jeff, tell us what it is. We don't like we're not tracking here. But um, but I, I just got, got to ask, like, you guys are like the only company that does this, right? That I know, at least that I know of. Uh, you know, it's always arrogant when you go, yeah, we are. But um, yes, we are, because we made ourselves that way. You're like, you um, created the category, basically. We did. We did. Yeah. But we didn't expect to. And when we delve into it, I think you'll be very surprised how it started, but more importantly, why it started. Um, and I don't know if that's a good uh, carrot dangle there, but I think even you'll be surprised about it. Yeah, well, it is. And I am like was very much hoping to hear the story. So let's go ahead and say, I'll let you put it in your words. Um, tell the audience, what is the Bluefish? Perfect. All right. So good to go from that angle first. Bluefish is the, and I actually, <laughs> I left Bluefish probably about three years ago, but I'm still somewhat part of that, uh, that ecosystem. It's the world's leading and first experiential concierge firm to billionaires and millionaires over the planet. And it's responsible for doing things like sending people down to the Titanic. We got asked by a couple to get a married in the Vatican by the Pope. We closed down a museum in Florence because the client wanted the ultimate Italian dinner. Um, we set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David in Florence. And then while he's eating that pasta, we'd had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade him. We've had people walk down the white carpet with Sue Elton John at his Oscar party. Uh, played drums with Guns N' Roses. We had a client that wanted to go backstage and meet the rock band Journey. We thought that was a bit naff. Instead, we got him on stage and he sang four tunes as the lead singer of Journey. And he's actually registered as the shortest-term lead singer of that rock band. So 
we were basically the Make-A-Wish Foundation for people with massive checkbooks, but Forbes <laughs> called me, uh, they called me the real-life Wizard of Oz. That, that, what, a, what a wonderfully self-deprecating way to put it, that you were the Make-A-Wish <laughs> Foundation for people with no illnesses and massive checkbooks. That's it's, Yeah, it's kind of weird. But it's kind of, here's the daft thing that a lot of people don't realize. I, I'm not good with people which is the first shocking people uh, that mm -hmm. the people will discover. And I didn't set out to be a concierge to the most connected affluent people in the planet. And people think, oh, rock stars, movie stars. Behind every movie star, there's a guy with a lot more money that bankrolls those movies. Yeah. You see, for every 10% that you know, Tom Cruise gets or Brad Pitt gets, that 85% outside goes to two or three main people. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that walk down the street that you have no idea. Like I had a client that um, he owned the most uh, shopping malls in St. Petersburg, Russia. He owned more shopping malls than anybody else singularly. So if you imagine how many stores are in a large shopping mall mm -hmm. and this guy's owning like about 200 of them in St. Petersburg... That guy's got money, but you wouldn't recognize him. He couldn't get on a red carpet. He wouldn't get his photograph taken. But the up-and-coming rapper that's just released his first song and is being pushed by Warner Brothers, hey, his face is everywhere, but he's only got a minuscule amount of money compared to these kind of guys. Those right. were the people that I ended up started working for. The reason I did this may interest you as a guy that was kicked out of school at the age of 15 worked on his dad's building site i was poor i was financially restricted mm -hmm. i didn't know what money was i also came from a time when i didn't have instagram to you know tell me how pointless and worthless my life was so right. i didn't have i didn't have podcasts like this to listen to people and how they did things so i didn't have any kind of mentorship whatsoever but as an entrepreneur, I had a gut reaction. I knew there had to be something out there. I knew that there had to be, you know, people were buying Porsches. I just didn't know anyone that was buying them. People were buying penthouses. I just didn't know what a penthouse was. So I went out to try and surround myself with affluent people. And along the way, they needed things. Oh, how do I get into this club? Oh, that restaurant's fully booked. I can't get a table. I became the guy that would find a way to make it happen. And I was only doing it. So once I had done what you needed, I could literally come up to you and I could go, hey, Jeff, how come you're rich and I'm not? You know, how come you're successful? How come you're... And it was quite openly, it was a Trojan horse. It was a way of me getting in the room mm. with uber successful people to ask that question. And that's how it started. That's how it grew. And that was the whole point of it. I wanted to know while I was poor, how come you were rich and I was not? And then I would action it. I would do what they were telling me. And all of a sudden, I'm no longer poor. And I would climb and climb and climb to find out, is there a difference in the mentality? Is there a difference in the mindset? So I went on a, a journey of self-discovery using a concierge firm as, as the Trojan horse in way to do it. That is so cool. I, I have to share how truly close to home that hits because I had my own Trojan horse in my 20s 
uh, I was a professional piano player in my 20s. And I used to get booked to play private parties. And I figured out if I get a suit that's properly tailored and I comb my hair and I am on time and I don't reek like cigarettes and I just do a certain number of things to be a, be a professional, I can pretty easily differentiate myself from a lot of the musicians that are real into the musician, you know, lifestyle, whatever. And I'll, and, and, and I can start getting hired by more and more successful people. And, and it evolves slowly, but like, I notice, like, Oh, it's easier to book a little jazz trio gig at an, at a fine dining restaurant. If I present a certain way. And then from there, it was like, people would meet me and they go, Oh, I like, you know, we're having a party at our house next weekend. Can we hire you? And I just kind of worked this angle. And eventually I got by my mid twenties, I was a private, uh, private party piano player for multiple billionaires in Houston, Texas, where I'm from. And I would go into their homes with like them and 10 of their friends and I'd play piano while they ate dinner. And then I could talk to them yep. and it's the same thing. And I started asking these billionaires in my early twenties, like, like, dude, I'm just a broke musician. How'd you get so rich? And they would tell me. And I, and that's when I got into entrepreneurship and starting businesses. So it's interesting. I've never met another person who had this angle of like getting in proximity to really successful people by providing them a service. And I, I shouldn't say I've never, I've met other people too that have done that, but to have it be so overt, that's just really cool. One of the funny things, and you just brought it up was I, I learned very early on that if I got an answer, I didn't like, it was because I was asking the wrong question. And I mm. remember because I was very you know, immature and, and ignorant, to how to ask the right questions. I remember my first questions used to repel people because I would literally say to them, hey, Jeff, you know, how come you're rich? Right, right, right. And that was a bad question. The way, the reason it was bad was because when someone asks you that question, you suddenly start thinking about your bank account. You know, how much money's in your stocks and shares, your investments. It's a financial number. And people don't want to give away their bank account number. Right. So when I ask about how rich you are, straight away the focus is on money and i noticed something rich people aren't born with money they're born with a mindset or they born to develop a mindset the money becomes a byproduct so yeah. my next question was hey jeff how come you're wealthy and i'm not again not a good question better than rich but not very good because all of a sudden people would be like oh it's because i found meditation oh it's because i found my partner and you know we've been together for 30 years we have three kids and i understand what matters in my life well that shit didn't help me because i'm right, not right. going to marry your wife i'm not going to start meditating that's not going to help me so i was getting the answers to the wrong question and then i started asking people how come you're successful mm. and I'm not bingo. That was it. All of a sudden they were like, well, it's because I view opportunity like this. I look at failure and I do this with it. And that's what gave me the mother load. And I realized that money was a byproduct. Comfort was a byproduct. Security, stability were all byproducts of singularly a successful mindset. And you can have no money. But if you change your mindset, everything else will change if you action and stick with that mindset. And that was it. Literally, I was hearing from people about the success 
successful mindset, the tricks, the trades, the, uh, the, the adaptations, the edits to the way they thought, saw, viewed standards. And I would literally walk out of the room and go, right, that's it. That's how I think now. That's how I behave. That's my new standard. And I suddenly started noticing that the rest of the life that I wanted started coming with that byproduct. So let me ask you something. And, and I, by the way, I love, I love what you said about, about the mindset and about asking and trying to take the focus off of wealth and money, even though we all know that when you're, when you're poor or you're broke yeah. or, you're, or you're just starting out, that's, you, you kind of are obsessed with that, but you have to broaden the focus. So it's not so narrow on that, that one piece of it. Um, but I want to ask you a question. Cause I feel like we live in, you know, you mentioned how Instagram uh, can tell everybody how crappy their life is or what, yep. whatever you said. And, and we live in this world now where, like you said, it's the, like the really, really rich people, unless they have a very specific thing that they're doing, like take like a guy like Ray Dalio, who's yep. legitimately a billionaire. He's not like a, yep. you know, some fake influencer that guy's loaded, but he has a company and he has a book and he has a movement and he has a reason why he puts himself out there. Yes. Right. But for every Ray Dalio, there's a hundred guys that are mega rich that you've never heard of or seen. Yeah. Right. And so most of the people you see on the internet that look rich, they're like, they're like play rich. They're yeah. not really rich. They're like play rich. And unfortunately, they're the ones that really tend to dominate the money psychology conversation and culture. Right. And so my question to you is, we live in a world where this concept of affluence or success or however we want to term it, it superficially looks a certain way. And we also live in a world that tempts us or teases us that if we, if we follow a set of, you know, play, we run a set of plays that we can actually get there. Like go to, you know, go to college, take on debt, go into either medicine or accounting or investment banking or, you know, one of these industries and then work that, you know, climb that ladder for so many decades and then, you know, strategically invest in this 401k or you like, and so like, like millions of people are given this playbook that says, okay, here's a picture of wealth. You can go look for it on Instagram. And then you, here's a set of plays you can run. And don't worry, and you'll, you know, this gives you the best shot. And yet we all, you and I both know in the world we live in, that playbook virtually never leads to that result. I mean, it is a statistical anomaly. If you actually got started in the world today and 40 or 50 years from now, running the conventional set of plays, you actually finished with like the equivalent of like 50 or $100 million or more. Like that just, that, that playbook doesn't actually lead to that result. It's kind of like teams that they're really good in the regular season, but they can never win in the playoffs. I feel like the world's playbook is like a playbook for doing well in the regular season, but like, you'll never really get the big prize. Right. Yeah, but who's the playbook benefit? Well, see, so the, exactly. That's what, but my, that's what's happening now. The playbook, everyone that tells you every college out there that tells you, you need a college education is doing it for their benefit. Of course. And all of the government loans out there are supporting this fallacy. So you're thinking, well, I've got to go here. I've got to do my four years. Then I've got to go and specialize on it and do another three years. And then, hey, I can get a cheap loan that's going to be like forfeit until the end. And then it's on a low interest rate. Right. Basically, who is this benefiting? 
it's benefiting that movement, that wheel. Of course. Not necessarily you. And the amount of people I know, and probably you as well, that are still carrying debt from when they were an architect, they were an accountant, they were a doctor, and now they're doing something completely different, but they're carrying that debt. So you've really always got to look, and I think this is one of the good things about COVID. I think the COVID has taught us to be less tolerant. They've yeah. taught us to really kind of like go, well, okay, you're selling me a good lump of snake oil there, mate, but where's the substance? Have you proved that you can do it? Do you have the substance for me to look at you as a source of credibility? And I think today, credibility metrics is everything. And I think we're getting tired of it. I think we're getting tired of the bullshit we're being uh, sent to us. And we're literally looking under that cover and going, well, hang on a minute. Why are you telling me this works? Are you going to benefit more than me out of this? Yeah. So you, you automatically went right where I was going with this, that there's this whole construct out there that's got an, it's got an agenda. You, yep. you nailed it. Um, you know, even, even if you think about the big employers that make the alumni contributions to the colleges to perpetuate that system, yep. because they need you to predict, they need, the, they need the colleges to produce predictable employees. The government perpetuates it because it's easier to collect taxes on people that earn a W-2 than earn, you know, 1099 or wh whatever other types of wages. Like it all, it all makes sense. But the, the, my question to you as somebody that's had legitimate proximity, and I, and I've had this too. It's a, it's not a lot of us that have had legitimate, significant proximity to, to actual billionaires and, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a billionaire. I'm working hard, but I'm not there yet. Um, how would you describe the difference between the mindset of a truly like an like anomalously wealthy and successful person in this world rather than the millions of people who look really successful and they might run the plays but they're not really in that same class that's the distinction i'm trying to get to what's the mindset difference the, the, and the, it is big it is big and I, it actually comes down to three things okay? okay this is and i at my peak at my peak in my concierge business i had 93 clients so I didn't have thousands, but 80% of those were billionaires. Okay. You don't need a lot of people when you've got <laughs> billionaires going, hey, I want to go for, away for a weekend. My budget's three quarters of a million dollars. Make me happy. <laughs> right. You don't need a lot of clients when you've got that kind of thing. So I was very lucky to be able to hang around with the, the, the Elon Musks, the Peter Diamandis's, you know, the Ray Dalio, the people that you're talking about, and other people that you've never heard of all over the planet, Korea, Poland, Russia, that are billionaires that I've been able to hang around with. And I noticed that no matter what culture they came from, what age, what demographic, what generation they came from, it always came down to three things. The first one, they value time differently. They don't care what you watched on Netflix. They don't want to ask you what you had for dinner last night. It's that when you speak with a billionaire, you're almost like being interviewed. You're like, hey, Jeff, how are you? And they're like, hey, Steve, what are you working on? What's important to you? So why is it you that you feel that can do this when there are other people out there? How are you going to do that? How are you going to scale it? And you, it, it, you don't have casual chit chat right. with these people. It's like, so how much can you, hang on, Johnny could answer. Johnny, come here. Steve's working on something. And it's, I've literally walked out of events going, bloody hell, I've just been fried. I've like been interviewed by like 20 people. 
The one thing they know they can do is make more money. The one thing they know that no matter how brilliant they are, they cannot do anything about, and it's time. They cannot produce another hour. So they really look at time vastly different to anybody else in the planet. Okay, so it's the valuation of time is greater with a successful person that truly lives a billionaire lifestyle than those that are playing at it. Because those people, oh, you'll want me to see, see me on Instagram. Notice that Elon Musk appears on Instagram and appears on social when he needs to. Right. The rest of the time, he's like, I don't need to be there. That's, that's your metrics. It ain't mine. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and we always used to joke about it, that the rich people would be like, oh, I love what you're talking about. Let's, let's meet for cocktails. Let, let's, let's go play golf. Let's meet for, let's do lunch. And you would go, oh, that's how the rich people live. And I suddenly realized why they do that. And they still do it today because they want to get past the resume. They want to get past the presentation of you. Because when you show up to see someone, you're putting your best bit forward. Right. Okay? It's not a true representation of who you are. It's the representation of you, who you want them to see. So when they say things like, oh, let's, let's meet after work for a cocktail and go through that, they want to get to know you. But more importantly, they want to get to know your culture and your belief mechanism. They want to know that if you coming into their world, you share the same beliefs, your, cultures, uh, your cultural viewpoints and values are aligned, then they can work with you. Mm. Because all the skill, if you're not very good at doing something, Hey, they can send you on a course for that. Right. Skill sets can be taught. Cultural values cannot. So they employ on that belief structure, and then they know they can expand it. And finally, the third thing that I noticed about successful people is the way they view failures. Mm. Every time something goes wrong, a non-successful person will lean back, hold their head, cry a pity party and go, oh my God, I've lost this. Oh my God, everything went wrong. A successful people will lean in to the failure and go, okay, where did this trip me up? Where's the oil here? Where's the gold, the diamond, whatever metaphor you want. Where's the education in this? Mm -hmm. Where did it go wrong? Because it doesn't all go wrong. There's one bit that trips you up that makes the domino effect so that the outcome's not what you want. They look in there to find out what that domino is. So successful people lean in to failure and reframe it as an education. So thank you. I was taking notes on that. Uh, I thought those were brilliant, uh, brilliant observations. Um, and, it, and it is true. I will say, um, I tell this story. I have a book coming out next, next year. And in, in the opening, I talk about one of those billionaires that I played piano for. And... The way that I sort of, it's almost like, like billionaires, uh, and it's not just billionaires, it's just like people of this mindset, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. Maybe they only have $900 million, still the same. Um, they so much appreciate when you do things for them or when you add value to them in a way that's, that's unique. That's not just, you know, sir, let me let me get you another glass of water or let me balance your checkbook or, you know, some, some sort of fungible skill. And I had this one, uh, the, the one story I tell is the guy that owned the Houston Texans. He owned the professional football team um, in Houston. His name was Bob McNair. I was the pianist that would play his parties. 
And he had a new fight song that he had written for the Houston Texans, right? It was, you know, they were going to sing it at the games and stuff. And he had it scribbled on a piece of paper. And he was like, hey, I want you to play this for the coaches. He was having a dinner with all the head coaches, the, the coaching staff, right? And he's like, I want to lead the coaches singing the new fight song. And he hands me this piece of paper that's just got like chicken scratch on it. Like it doesn't even look like music. And so I said, I said, Bob, like, you know, this, I don't know who wrote this, but they're not like, like, it's not really written on a staff. Like, can you hum the tune for me? And he hummed it and I picked it out and I put chords to it and I ended up playing it for the coaches. So the fact that I did that for him, that I allowed him to have his moment with his coaches singing his new fight song, where he knew that I had taken this thing that wasn't workable and I had added my skills and value to make it workable. After that, I literally, I got to, I got to talk to him for an hour. This guy never talks to anybody for more than five <laughs> minutes, but he was so excited that I helped him pull off this fight song that he gave me an hour lesson on perseverance and grit and stamina and how he made billions of dollars. Um, so I just, uh, I, anyway, I appreciate so much what you said, because that's so consistent with my experience of these types of people. So, so now in your story, you, I mean, can you give us some more specifics? So like you're struggling, you want to get proximity, maybe you can't name names, but like, who did you get proximity to? What did you do for them? And how did that parlay into a business? So I didn't know it was a business. And that was the first thing. I ended up leaving being a bricklayer, which is a skilled profession. Bricklayers, mm -hmm. masonry, you know, you need these people to know what they're doing. I went out to try and find a way of being around affluent people. So the first thing I did when I jumped out of the building site was I tried to sell cars, become a stockbroker, become a, a jet charter agent, a yacht charter agent, you know, exotic limousines. I tried all of that thing. And if, if anyone's not lucky enough to see me on video here, I'm 240 pound of bald ego, uh, bald, uh, you know, weight and size and demeanor. I'm not the guy you want to bump yeah, into. You, at 11 you, look like a, you look like a hell's angel. Yeah, it, 100 percent yeah. tax right. and all that kind of stuff. Full on ugly. And I'm a biker. So it's not really helping. Then it should be no surprise that the job I ended up getting was a bouncer. So I became a doorman. So I remember being on this door of this shitty nightclub, thinking to myself, I wanted to surround myself with affluent people. I've left a skilled profession and gone down. My job description now was just to slap people. And so I didn't have any way around, but all of a sudden I started watching how affluent people handled themselves, how they were different, how confident. I'll give you an example. You're on the door. A guy pulls up outside a nightclub in a nice car. And I would ask myself this question. Is he driving the car or is the car driving him? And I would watch for the next two minutes. The guy that gets out of the car, grabs his jacket, opens up his door quickly for his partner, and then gives the car to the valet, maybe tips him a bit, looking after it a bit, and walks into the club. Hey, he's driving the car. He's confident. He's not looking for any recognition. He just likes the car. You know, the guy that gets out of the car and almost puts his jacket on in slow motion, checks the crowd. Are you staring at me? Do you want a piece of these wheels? Yeah, I know. You know, yeah, I've got it on finance, but hey, I'm making the payments just about, you know, I'm living in a, a two bedroom apartment with seven other guys, but still I'm making the payment. The car was driving him. 
Mm-hmm. And I started noticing that and I started interacting with different people and I wanted to build up my Rolodex. Now, my wife's been with me. We were 16 and 17 when we met. And at that time, I used to tell her, let me change the room I'm in. Let me get a Rolodex of successful people and then I'll get one of them to give me a job. That'll see how good I am at communicating or how smooth I can be or how creative I can be. Again, still 240 pound of ugly, but they will see through that and I'll get a job. I started that in the early 90s when I was in Hong Kong. In 1997, I got a deal with this little car company called Ferrari, and they had me look after some of their events for their 50th anniversary in Monaco during the Formula One Grand Prix. And at the time, I was still thinking, yeah, 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 I'm doing this. I was marketing, branding, developing events, make curating the invita- uh, invitation list, inviting celebrities over from the Cannes Film Festival that was the week. But I was doing all of this and still telling my wife, hey, this is going to be one of those climactic moments, Claire. It will quadruple my network within my, uh, uh, my, my Rolodex. I'll be able to get that job now. And Claire was like, hang on a minute. You have a job. Right. You already have it. You're doing it because I wasn't doing it for free. I was charging well. We were now living in a penthouse, but I still never woke up to the fact that I'd actually built my own industry. And I never used to call myself the concierge. I was just you know, known as either Bluefish or Steve Sims. He's the man that can. I know a fella. I was that fella. And bottom line of it is without realizing it, I had clients. I didn't have a website. I didn't have any of the things that you thought you need. I didn't have a business card. Why do a business card? I'm only doing this temporarily until I get a real job. And that's when I suddenly realized that I had solved a need. And you don't realize something that you did, okay? Because it's the same thing I did. Never give a client what they ask for. That guy asked you to play this. He gave you a napkin and said, do this. What you delivered to him was what he wanted and needed and desired. Mm. Now with me, people would come up to me and they go, hey, can you get me into this party? Yeah, I can. But wouldn't you like to be in the VIP section where all the celebrities are? Wouldn't you like to be there as a guest of the owner? Wouldn't you like to maybe close it down and throw you out of it? I took it further. Every single time someone came to me, no matter what they asked me, I would go, okay, how can I take this further? And this is the same today with the clients that I coach and I train. We listen to what you say, and then we help you gain what you need, lust, and desire for. So I think today, the guy, and you were doing it, just reactionally, you were doing it. You've got to look at what is the need here? What is the lust? You knew what that guy wanted. You knew the moment that he wanted to create in front of the rest of the people of the team. And you went to do that. You didn't do what you were told to do. You gave him what he was dreaming about. That basically he gave you chicken scratch to get Mm. it done. But you read what the desire was and instinctively You created that. Hey, sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to let you know you can get a free copy of my book, The Millionaire Shortcut, which shows you the fastest way to become a millionaire in the new economy. There's a special link just for this episode in the description. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode.
you know, in marketing and in service, we, we talk about surprise and delight. That's, yep. you know, I, I know people that do like the live events business and they'll always say like, you know, that you'll plan an event or you'll plan a, a piece of an event. And then they'll, the good ones will ask the question. They'll say, okay, what's the surprise and delight component? What's the, the cherry or the sprinkles on top that people weren't expecting, right? Um, and that's how you, that's how, so, so important about how you build relationships. So, so then, so tell me, I mean, it, you know, you're hosting, uh, you said the Grand Prix in Monaco for Ferrari doing some event. And was that when you had your light bulb moment that says, okay, this isn't just a stepping stone to getting a job. This is an actual business. And, and, and how, where did you, yeah, I guess, where did you take it from there? Well, I didn't. Um, <laughs> thankfully my wife did. My wife right. pulled me aside and she was the one that sat me down in the apartment and went, you've got this, you're doing this. And of course, entrepreneurs are really, really good that when everything's going really, really well, we find a way to screw it up, mm. you know, because we're constantly tweaking, tightening, you know, editing. We don't let, you know, the old analogy of kind of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That ain't an entrepreneur. No, we want, we want to how can we make it go faster? How can we sell it for more? How can we scale it? How can we treble it? That was me. But as soon as my wife drew my attention to I was the business, I started panicking. I started fretting. Do you know, I honestly, I went out and started wearing suits to client meetings and events. Now, mm. prior to that, since the age of 15, actually since the age of 13, when I shouldn't have been, I was riding motorcycles. I've had a, a, a lust and a, a love for motorcycles. I currently live in here in LA. I have 12 motorcycles, no car. Okay, my wife's got a car, but I've got Uber. I don't need a car. But I used to ride motorcycles all the way through my life. At that point, I was so intimidated to the fact that, hey, I have a business. I better start showing up as people. I blew it up. I started wearing suits. I bought a car and everything went wrong. And funny enough, true story. And it's in my book, Blue Fishing. I turned up at one of these parties wearing suits and I had arrived in a vintage Ferrari that I had purchased. All of this shit to impress you. And then I got home from Monaco and I sent off at the time, it was those roller films that you would send off to be, mm -hmm. you know, translated into, into pictures and sometime in the next... I don't know, two weeks to three years, you'd get your pictures back. Right. And I was looking through these pictures of me. And there was a picture of me at the time between two, 1997, two of the biggest movie stars in the world, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, doing all the Terminator and Rambo movies. And there was a picture of me between them in my suit. And I realized I'm not in that picture. And I went through all mm. of these pictures, this persona, this guy who was trying to kind of look smart and suave, looked as though he didn't fit in, you know? And I realized I had done the worst thing in the world. I had sold out me to try and be someone else that you needed to see. And that was terrible. I straight away, once I got over that, and literally I, I went into a drunken bind, uh, binder and uh, um, my friends came to rescue me. And it was like three days. I locked myself in a room. It was a pretty dark moment for me. We got rid of the car. We got rid of the watches. And we got rid of the suits. Never, ever did wear the suits ever again. 
Okay. They were almost toxic to me, but for some reason, never threw them away until I arrived here in America, like in the early 2000s and found them in a box and set, uh, sent them off to uh, Goodwill. But I had sold me out. Now, even today, I'll roll up at SpaceX with Elon Musk. I've turned up with Richard Branson or went, you know, sadly, his mum's passed away now. But Eve, when we were working on the Rock the Casbah event, I would turn up as I am here with you now. Black T-shirt, more than likely a crash helmet in my hand on a motorcycle. That's how I showed up. And I realized that people weren't hiring me. They were hiring the solution that I provided. Mm -hmm. What I looked like, how I sounded. Maybe I looked a bit funny. Maybe I sounded a bit funny with this accent. But I solved the problem. And when you can turn up as a solution, all the other stuff is irrelevant. When you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you've got a headache, you go and get a headache tablet from the bathroom. You don't care what the logo looks like. You don't quickly go and search the website to see how it portrays itself on the internet. You just care that that tablet is going to solve your headache. Sharp as a solution and all the prettiness is no longer relevant. So, so let's dig into that. Show up as a solution. I completely agree. I, I you know, this is your episode, not mine, but, uh, but I'll just say I have a story. The business that I have now, Entre Institute, is literally a manifestation of the reality that you're describing where I set out to just solve a problem, yeah. not even to start a business. And it literally got to the point where people were like, Jeff, please, can we buy something from you? We don't, you're, you're talking to us and we're so excited about what you're saying. We want to give you money because that's what you do as an American. And finally, I'm like, okay, I'll create a course and I'll sell it to you. And then, you know, now I have a big education company, but all I was doing was, was producing content that solved people's problems. Um, and, and, yep. and so anyway, my, the, but the thing that jumps out at me about you is you're solving, first of all, complex problems, also loosely defined problems from the standpoint of nobody's going, Hey, here's the plan, run it for me. They're going, Hey, here's the end goal. And you got to figure out the plan. First of all, you got to figure out if it can even be done. So, so there's something in you that I'm going to, I'm going to speculate is innately optimistic because in order to start this, doing this work that you do for people, my guess is you see yes, where a lot of other people see no because you're the one that goes out and makes the answer into yes through your own efforts, right? So my, my question, I guess, is twofold. One is, uh, wh where do you think that that came from in you? Well, first of all, am I right? I mean, do you feel like you, you, you sort of naturally tackle things that other people would say, oh, that can't be done? And then if so, where do you feel like that came from? How'd you get that way? I love a challenge for a start, okay? Mm -hmm. I love being the kid that someone turns around and says, oh, you can't do that. And that's it. You just have to then do it. You know, even though nine times out of 10, they get you in trouble or, you know, go the wrong way. But as entrepreneurs, we love a challenge. I also love that place of being uncomfortable. I used to do kickboxing. Okay. And for many, many years, I used to fight at kickboxing. I would always be uncomfortable getting into that ring with a new opponent. What is he going to do? How is he going to come at me? Now, once you're two minutes into it, you've read him and you're fine. But I always loved getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I race motorcycles now for exactly the same reason. I like pushing myself. Now, where it comes from, that's a beautiful place. 
I'm an Irish lad from East London, okay? Mm. We're curious little buggers. And I never lost my curiosity. And I think that was actually my unicorn, my super talent. I was always curious, well, there's a red velvet rope over there. How do I get on the other side of that? Oh, how come this can be done? It was never a case of, oh, don't even try that, Steve. That's impossible. Mm. It was always a case of, how can I make that possible? I would reframe the word and I would find out how can it be done? And I would ask the question, hey, what needs to happen for me to be on the other side of that velvet rope? If I asked the question, can I be on the other side of that velvet rope? Instant no. Shortest word in human language. Knee-jerk reaction for everyone. People don't like to try shit. No, you can't. That would be the answer. Hey, what needs to happen for me to be on the other side of that rope? If they said no, they sound like an illiterate moron because that wasn't a question I asked. Right. So people would be like, oh, well, um, you need to know the manager or you need to be part of that private party. Great. Mm -hmm. Now I have an option. Now I have a result. Now I have a formula or some way to stay. get in with these people. I've done stuff before and they've gone, oh, that's, that's reserved. You've got to be part of Sony. Oh, you've got to be part of IMG. Oh, you've got to be with the manager. Great. Now I would go and line up and all of a sudden do something with Sony. All of a sudden, I'm now getting in there. So mm -hmm. I just needed the route, and it started and stemmed from curious. My wife says, to this day, I'm a 55-year-old, five-year-old. I've never lost that element of curiosity. Hmm. So, so what, are, what, what would you say is like the most improbable scenario that you've pulled off for a client that required every ounce of that that curiosity and that uh what needs to happen approach <sighs> that's that's a bit of a tough one although i think i have an answer for you see the beautiful thing about being curious is when you are engulfed in curiosity you don't look at plausibility Okay. Ooh. You're just, you're just curious. You know, how can, how can I do when you're unplugging the back of the TV to see how it works, you're not thinking, well, how do I put it back again? You're just thinking, how do I take this? But how do I unscrew that? How do I do it? How do I poke that? You know, and you go down that route. So I've been in rooms like Fogman's second. I, I mentioned it earlier. I had a very powerful client of mine contact me and he said he wanted to show off uh, his power, his connections by throwing the most amazing meal only for six people in Florence, Italy. Now, when he gave me that guideline, I'd already worked with him before. He already knew I was um, um, able to do things, but mm -hmm. given with that task, the first thing I do is I fall into my five-year-old curious kid and I go, what's the stupidest thing I can go for in Florence? Mm -hmm. And I've always remembered, and this came from Elon Musk. He said to me, they'll always laugh at you before they applaud. So I don't want to go for something that's impossible. You, by doing that, you straight away give yourself a get out. You know, you've already, right. by saying that word, it's like Voldemort. You just don't say that word. Right. Okay? What's the stupidest thing that I can go for that everyone around me is going to laugh at? And I thought, I'm in Florence. What's a location in Florence? If I was going to throw an event in Paris, where would it need to be for you to be able to see it on Instagram and go, Steve's in Paris, Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower, yeah. If I'm going to do something in New York, what needs to be the backdrop for you to go, 
Sims is in New York, Statue of Liberty. Right. Okay? So there's all, every country, every place has something that signifies exactly where you are. In Florence, it's shrouded by this Renaissance artwork that quite simply could have you in France, it could have you in Northern Europe, it could have you in London, it could have you in Washington and some of the art galleries up there. I needed something that said, this is only in Florence, Michelangelo's David. It's mm -hmm. only in Florence. So I thought to myself, that's the stupid one. If I want the ultimate view that says Sims is in Florence, where's it got to be? It's got to be there. So I went to them. And the first thing I did was I tried to find out not only how can I get my foot in the door. That's easy. You get other people to make the introduction. Mm -hmm. Okay. But how can I turn up with a solution? Always be a solution to somebody else's problem. I did a little bit of Googling and I found out that this museum was having a gala later on this year, like seven months away. And it was going to be raising money for that roof. So when I went along to meet them, I said, Hey, I've got a few things I'd like to speak with you about. And I've got an event that I would like to host uh, at your museum late at night, closed out. So it's completely private. But before I get into that, so I've seeded them with what I wanted. Mm-hmm but I haven't gone into it to do too deep because now I want to flip it and go, Hey, but I noticed you were having a gala to raise money to, for the roof. Is it a special kind of roof you need? It's a museum. Of course, it's a special kind of roof. It ain't the usual one you have on the house. Oh yeah. It's got to protect against humidity and fire. It's got to have the highest fire retention. It's got to right. do this. So they went into it. People love talking about what they love. So they start telling me about this roof. And then they start telling me about the problem of the last time they had it repaired. How long that's, how much that was. Oh my God, woe is me. You're now making it easy for me. So I was able to turn around and go, look, do you remember I said I needed something? I've got a way by you helping me, I can cover 40% of your goal before you've even printed a fire. A, a produced a flyer for the gala. Would that be of interest and benefit to you? They were like, oh my God. Now I've got leverage and a reason for them to be engaged what I wanted. That's when I told them about the meal and they said yes. And once I got it, and here's the dumb thing, I already in the back of my mind was trying to think of other places in Florence that could, I could host this party at, mm -hmm. you know? When I got the yes from them, I was like, crap. Now what do I do? Now that I've got a yes, typical entrepreneur, <laughs> how can I make it better? You know? So that's when I started working on that. We managed to get Andrea Bocelli to agree to come in and serenade my clients on the night of the event. Now, I've got to also let you know, I got this request on the Sunday and the dinner was on the Wednesday. So I literally only had two working days to pull this dinner off. By one o'clock on Monday, I already had the location and the chef. So I literally had a day and a half to go, wow, you know, reveling the fact that I'd pulled it off. On the night, Andrea Bocelli is actually kind of warbling around the, um, the room, trying to find out where there was as little reverb as possible, which mm -hmm. is pretty hard when you're in a museum that specializes in marble. Um, but we found the place for him 
And then we're sat down. There's me, him, and his wife, Veronica. It's seven o'clock in the evening. The client's turning up at nine. They're just setting up the table. And honestly, I suddenly had this incredible shiver that go through me. Literally like someone had thrown the ice bucket over me. And it sh I shivered so much, so dramatically. I had such a convulsion that only lasted a couple of seconds that Andrea was concerned, spoke to Veronica in Italian, and she leant over to me and she said, are you okay? And I said, I am. But I suddenly got this cold shock go through me because I suddenly realized where I am, what I've pulled off, and who I'm sat next to. I hadn't given myself the chance to think about what was happening. I was just doing. Yeah. And it just all came to me on a wave. So I often sit there and go, how the hell did and I go back to Florence? I'm back in Florence, I think, in about three weeks' time, you know, as long as COVID lets me in. I walk past doors that I was having held open for me while walking through with powerful. And I see those kind of things. And I go, how could a kid from the East End of London that doesn't even wear a shirt do these things? And that's because my curiosity wouldn't allow the doubt to get in the way of it. You know, that's so true. When you get, when you get obsessed with solving problems, it's, it's, it's like you never, you know, there's a danger in stopping to realize what you're doing sometimes. Yeah. Like you lose momentum or you become self-aware or you become it's a danger. Um, yep. I, I think a lot I, about this may seem kind of esoteric, but in, in physics, there's something called the Heisenberg principle. Um, are you a, are you a breaking bad fan? Uh, who isn't? I don't exactly. want to talk to you if you're not. Okay, good. This interview can continue since you're into breaking bad. I was going to have to end it if you weren't. Yeah. Um, so Heisenberg, obviously, um, Heisenberg was a physicist, and I've always wondered why they named that character Heisenberg. And my theory, and I maybe, maybe, maybe if I become a client, you can help me answer this question. You can get me the, the creator of Breaking Bad to answer this question, <laughs> if my theory is correct. Why they named him Heisenberg. So the pr Heisenberg principle in physics says that basically... There's a, there's a contradiction in particle physics, like dealing with tiny particles, where you, can, you cannot simultaneously identify the location and the momentum of a particle. Meaning if you have a, you know, little tiny particles, they're all moving around really fast all the time, right? So if you, with like an electron microscope, if you try to take a picture of a, of a particle and freeze it in time, you can see where it is but you can't measure where it's going. On the flip side, they have devices that can measure where the particle's going, the direction, the angle, the momentum, but in those, they can't capture the precise location. There's this, there's this duality you know, contradiction where you cannot simultaneously measure location and, and direction. I think, and I think that, that they applied that to the character of Heisenberg because I think if he had ever stopped to figure out where am I, he would not have kept going. It no, was only because he was, so he was so caught in the momentum of where he was going that he never actually self-assessed and realized where he was. And that, I think that's the arc of the show. That's my theory on why they <laughs> named it Heisenberg. But I think it's a deep truth for all entrepreneurs that there is great danger in stopping yes. the people say, oh, you got to stop and smell the roses. You got to stop and take stock. You got to stop and no. I feel like when you're 
there, like I, I wrote down what you said. When you are engulfed in curiosity, you don't worry about plausibility. When you stop, you start to worry about whether or not what you're doing is actually doable yep. instead of just being caught up in doing it. I think that is a profound truth. Well, that's going to be my next Instagram posting. <laughs> <laughs> Only because you pulled it out of me. Well, it's a, it's a great quote. When you're engulfed in curiosity, you don't worry about plausibility. And I like that you said plausibility, not possibility. Plausibility. Yeah. Like, because people, you know, you go ask 100 people if something's doable, they're going to tell you. They're going to say, oh, well, it's, it's unlikely. It's not plausible. It's improbable. It's, you know, keep your feet on the ground. Don't think too big. You can't be disappointed, blah, blah, blah. Curiosity, man. That's, that is my takeaway from this conversation is get Good. curious, stay curious. Um, okay, so I, I know we just have a few minutes, a couple minutes. Um, I, I want to ask you, um, so I was reading about your book. I, full disclosure, I have not read your book, Blue okay. Fishing. Um, but you, by the way, good opportunity to tell the audience, you have a book called Blue Fishing. Um, I, you, yeah, and, yeah, and, and I've got to quickly tell you this. I never went out to be an author. Anyone okay. out there that's trying to write a book, I'm sorry this next story is going to piss you off. But I was in a bar and when you're in a party with good people, good things happen. And I was literally in a New York party, having a few old fashions, telling stories. This girl runs away from me. It was kind of scary. She run away with me, run away from me for, with such force that the guy behind her looked at me and was kind of like, what did you do, fella? You know, she came back with this older woman that turned out to be one of the directors of Simon and Schuster. And I told, she said, tell that story again. I told the story again. And I had a book deal a week later. So it stunned me. Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen is the name of the book. I thought it wouldn't get anywhere because I thought everyone thinks like this. Everyone does like this. Everyone communicates like this. Only to find out that they didn't. And it not only became a bestseller, it's actually translated and still hit the top list. In Vietnam, Korea, Thailand, Poland. It's just been released in Russia. So three years ago, that's why I started doing more speaking and coaching and training within uh, you know this world. Huh. Well, that's that's amazing. I'll uh, I'll tell you my book deal story sometime, but it's frankly sim it's somewhat similar in the sense that <laughs> it didn't set out to to write a book. I was just doing a thing, and I was so engrossed in doing the thing. People wanted to know about the doing of the thing. And, you know, now there's a book, right? So, so okay. But the, the reason I brought up the book, partly because I wanted you to be able to talk about it and, and to the audience, I, I'm, I will say that I'm, I'm excited to read Blue Fishing. Like, I want to, is there an audio, you can get an audio book, right? Yeah, you can get it on audio book. You can even head over to stevedsims.com and, you know, see a little video from our book launch. If you want to, if you want to see the world's coolest book launch, Go and see how I did it at stevedsims.com. Yeah. You ain't got to buy the book, but watch the video. I, I did watch that video, by the way, and it's really <laughs> funny. You got you had quite some characters at your book launch. Yeah. Um, but so there was, when I was reading about the book, there was one thing that it said that the book talks about that I wanted to ask you about, if you have time. I know we're, we're about sure. out of time. Um, but it was, there were some things, it was saying the book teaches you this and this and this and this. And one of them was, don't be easy to understand be impossible to misunderstand. Yeah. I wondered if you could elaborate on that because I didn't have time to dig into it. 
Absolutely. We're getting really shit at communication. We're actually getting terrible at it. Um, and especially now that there's a lot of topics out there from, from Black Lives Matter, Asian hate, Me Too, politics. There's a lot of conversations that we have to have. A lot of people are saying things that people are taking out of context and being viewed out as inappropriate. So the byproduct is that people aren't communicating anymore because we're shit scared to do it. I would rather say something stupid and be willing to be educated than remain ignorant. And that's just my philosophy behind it. The other downside is that we're overcomplicating things. When I say something to you and I try to give you a message, tell you about something I'm working on, how I say it is irrelevant. How you receive it is everything. So basically I can make this easier to make sure what I'm saying is going to be received in the way I want it, want it to be said by quite simply making sure that it is impossible to misunderstand. I want to have a beer with you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. Clear, crystal, don't woolly it, don't fluff it. So today, brevity is king. Clarity is what we're all searching for. And try to be like that in your messages. You think you're easy to understand, but force yourself to be impossible to misunderstand. Hmm. Brevity, clarity. I heard like some specificity. Be brief, be clear, be specific, be impossible to misunderstand. Yep. I like that. As a, as a podcast host, interviewer, author, teacher, I appreciate that very much. Well, um, I, I hope you can share it out and I hope people will be doing it because it doesn't cost anything. Just uh, I want people to be clearer in their messaging. Yeah, it, it actually saves you time. <laughs> oh, 100%. How much respect is that? Amen. Well, Steve, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so grateful for you making the time to come on the show. Um, congratulations on, on the amazing things that you've pulled off in this world and congratulations on making the shift now to where you're, you're not just serving 93 clients, you're inspiring millions of people through your, your speaking and your book and all the work that you're doing. So, um, really I'm, I'm grateful. How can people go? You mentioned stevedsims.com. Obviously the book, uh, blue fishing is available on Amazon, wherever books are sold. How else can people come find you? I have a private Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. Um, but you can go to stevedsims.com, find out about my community, Sims Distillery, my events, Sims Speakeasies. You can find out about everything just off of Steve D. Sims. Or basically, follow me on Instagram, where I show off the kind of stupid shit that I get up to <laughs> on, again, Steve D. Sims. Cool. And obviously, you have a, a podcast, The Art of Making Things Happen. I do, I do. And I'm very eager to come and chat with you about getting your story on there. So uh, don't be surprised if I try to hunt you down to be a guest on my show. You just finished this episode of the Millionaire Secrets Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please like and share this episode and do leave us a review. Let us know how we impacted you today. Your next step toward creating your awesome life is to join me and thousands of others in the Entre Nation community where you'll receive free training, networking with other awesome life seekers, access to live events, discounts, merchandise, and other awesome perks. Head over to www.entrenation.com. That is www.entrenation.com and join us today. And of course, do please follow me on social media. 
I can be found on all the major social networks at Jeff Lerner Official. Thank you again for listening, and please go be awesome. Awesome.